Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. We got a really important show for you today. In segment one, we're going to discuss climate change and its impact on the Doomsday Glacier, which is the nickname given to the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. Then in segment two, we're going to take a look around the news at some stories that caught my eye this past week. But first up is the Thwaites Glacier. This is a massive glacier in West Antarctica whose long-term stability is in doubt according to recent research. And this could have catastrophic consequences for coastal cities around the world due to the resulting sea level rise. Some research suggests that in as little as five years, the glacier could suffer massive collapse. Today, we're joined by Dr. Richard Alley, a professor of geosciences at Penn State University, to help us understand what's happening at Thwaites and the implications for our world. Dr. Alley, thanks so much for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, before we dive in to talk about the Doomsday Glacier, let's talk about you. You received your PhD in geology from the University of Wisconsin, and you're currently in the Department of Geosciences at Penn State University. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about your research. Tell us about the work that you do. Yeah, so I'm an old fart. I've been working on ice since my undergraduate days at Ohio State. I started in 77. I've been to Antarctica a few times, to Greenland a bunch of times, and Alaska. I work with with good researchers who do good stuff. And we study big ice sheets, uh, Greenland, Antarctica, past ones. We study mountain glaciers. Three big questions. Um, will the ice sheets fall in the ocean and flood the coasts? What is the history of climate in the ice? And when we can do it, how did they make Yosemite beautiful? You know, how do they modify landscapes? Gotcha. Yeah, we're going to get to all that. But I have to ask you really quickly, do I have this right that you were the co-recipient of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize? I was on a committee that was the co-recipient along with thousands of other people. So um, the, the United Nations, the governments of the world said we need real information on what the science really says about climate. And they set up something that's sort of like the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, but for the world for climate, that's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it gets, it's the mother of all committees. You get thousands of scientists together who are just living this and spending their nights and their weekends trying to tell the public what we know. And I helped a little on the second assessment and the third assessment and the fourth assessment. They've gotten up to six now. And um, so there were a whole bunch of us that were were recognized through the contributions of the committee. So no, I'm not a Nobel Prize winner, but I got to work with people who did wonderful things. Oh, so you're going to be modest. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it. He's a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to let you be that modest. I mean, come on. I've never won anything close to that. I think I won like a trophy, a participation trophy for sports <laughs> in high school. So, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, before we get into uh, talking about your work, um, 
I just find this fascinating because I have never been there. Um, and I think our listeners will find it fascinating. You said you've been to Antarctica multiple times, Greenland, Alaska. So without going deep into the science of it, maybe just the experience of it, tell us what it's like to visit a place like Antarctica. That just sounds fascinating. Oh, it's fantastic. The coast is the most, you know, there's penguins and seals and whales and glaciers dripping down off the mountains and huge storms roaring by. It's just glorious. Uh, and then you get up in the middle and it's a it's really subtle because there's an ice sheet and there's snow drifts and there's nothing in between. It's just snow. And I was up at South Pole and we're running around on the surface and it's minus 30. And we went down in a snow cave where there were some ice cores stored, which is at minus 50. And you go from minus 30 to cold. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Now, uh, did you stay in, in one of like the like scientific um, labs there that's like, you know, sort of, you know, airlocked and, and provides you some level of warmth? We, for, for a night or two at South Pole, yes. Most of my field work has been tense. So, um, you know, the, the old Scott tent that, that's, that's big canvas things that, um, so yeah, I've, I've been there at one point in my life where we did it wrong. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's back up. We're, we're going to get into the science of all this in a moment, <laughs> but you've stayed overnight in a tent in Antarctica. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How do you stay warm in a tent in a Antarctica? Really that seems big impossible. sleeping bag. <laughs> <laughs> this is very scientific stuff, folks. Very you probably scientific. aren't following this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, oh, my goodness. I have some pictures, you know, the things that would – we're really careful in the modern world about cleaning up after ourselves. But in the old days, people were a little looser. And, you know, going out in a in a – howling gale with a shovel oh my goodness well that sounds amazing so uh, how about greenland tell us a little bit about uh visiting greenland you know it's it's rather than penguins you you have other things there's muskox running around on the coast and you you i have never met a polar bear on the ice but you're a little careful just in case we had a long discussion whether we needed to protect against polar bears right up in the middle and then a fox came trotting into camp. 200 miles from the nearest rock and this Arctic fox comes trotting into camp. And we said, yeah, you probably should be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's he, he's looking for something on that long trip. Yeah, <laughs> you got uh, that and, one right. And- uh, Alaska, were you there when there was no sun? What was that like? We were working, you know, sort of down in the banana belt. So we were working on the Matanuska Glacier. and um, But we did winter work. And oh, dear, is it beautiful in the winter. And and it, it builds these water came out from underneath it. And it makes this giant skating rink in front. And then the glacier advances into that and it breaks the layers and makes these giant tents of ice that you could walk underneath and there's ice crystals growing from the the roof of the the ice cave that you're in that are you know half a foot long or something oh dear what a wonderful place I still can't get over that you were staying in a tent in Antarctica. <laughs> I won't even say in a tent in my backyard when it drops below like 50. But, you know, <laughs> um, anyway, I think our listeners want to hear the science of all this stuff. I could go on forever. I love like winter's my favorite season, but uh, uh, we'll move on. So um, so you've done some work on long history and specifically on ice cores. So 
tell us about this work with ice cores, how it's done and, and what specifically it tells us about our climate past and our climate future. Yeah. So, so an ice sheet first, just a little background. Uh, the, the kids used to say, I have a professor button. You push the button and I profess. Um, so, so <laughs> a little background. If you've ever tried to make a pancake, you pour a little batter in the middle of a, of a griddle and then it spreads under its own weight. That's an ice sheet. You pour snow on top of an island or a continent or a mountain faster than it melts, and it piles up, and then it spreads under its own weight. And so the ice on the east side of Greenland is flowing east to make icebergs, and the ice on the west side is flowing west to make icebergs. And there is not a humongous crevasse in the middle. It's just spreading under its own weight like a pancake. And what that does, at the bottom in Greenland is ice that was deposited a long time ago. And then on top of it is younger and younger and younger and younger and younger. And because it's spreading, the layers at the bottom are thinner. So there's a lot of time down there. And then at the top, they're thicker. And so what you can do is you take a, a glorified pipe with teeth on the end of it and you spin it and it drills down into the ice and you have a little thing that grabs the ice and then you bring it up and there's a few years and then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again until you've gone two miles and that's a lot of ice there are annual layers in it those. takes a few years to go that far it does it does wow um, yeah, this is, this is serious because when you start talking about hanging a glorified pipe on the end of two miles of cable, that's already pretty he heavy. And yeah. um, so this is the people who do this. I'm making it sound easy. They are fantastically good, fantastically careful. The skill that goes into drilling an ice core, getting it up safely, not breaking it, not melting it, not doing anything bad to it, keeping it clean for the scientists so that we don't complain about it. These are good people. Okay? <laughs> right? So then we, there's annual layers in it. That's summer and winter snow are different looking and they're chemically and isotopically and electrically different. So, so you can do the age. Um, if you know a little bit about ice flow, the thickness of an annual layer tells you how much it snowed. In there, there are micrometeorites from space. There are things made by cosmic rays. There is dust and pollen and sea salt. If it's in the air, it's in the ice. There are indications of past temperature. There are bubbles that actually have old air. If you want 50,000-year-old air, this is the only place on Earth, this is the ice sheets that you can go, pull up the bubbles, break them, and say, this is 50,000-year-old air. So, and we have wow. all of this together. So you can start asking, what was the climate at the poles? And what might have changed it from today? Because you have in there things like space dust and indicators of how bright the sun was indirectly and, you know, and, and dust and pollen and CO2 and everything else. So you can start putting together histories of the climate and why it did what it did. I actually just had former South Carolina Congressman Bob Inglis on the show, and he talks about his intellectual journey on climate change and how early on he denied that it was a problem because he was a Republican and, you know, he was just kind of saying what Republicans said. 
and he talked about the things that changed his mind. One of the things that changed his mind was his family. But um, another important part of it was when he went on a trip to Antarctica and actually saw the ice cores and had a really powerful impact on him. That's good. I've, I've spoken to, to Representative Inglis a few times, an amazing person, really, yeah. really interesting to talk to, deep insights, uh, doing a whole lot of good, I believe. Yeah, you know, I respect people who, uh, you know, we can all be partisans, we can all have our positions on policy and those sorts of things. But, you know, when, you, when you're able to, to set that aside and see the empirical evidence, I like that. So, yeah, it made an impression on him. So, that's, that's really awesome that's stuff. That's great. All right. <laughs> All right. So, let's talk a little bit about some trends in sea level rise. And then I want to get to the title of today's episode. Uh, it's, it's very much clickbait, which is the Doomsday Glacier. But let's start with uh, some, some scientific trends and you can tell us sort of where things are going. So, over the past few decades or however long of a time scale you think is important to talk about with our listeners, um, what is the current pattern of sea level rise worldwide and where could it possibly be going? So, you know, we, we burn fossil fuels because we love the good we get from the energy. This raises CO2. This raises temperature. The world is warming. We are primarily responsible. CO2 is primarily responsible. This is causing several, many changes. But one is it warms the ocean. You warm the air. The air is in contact with the ocean. The ocean is warming. When you heat water, it takes up more space. So the ocean is rising a little because it's getting warmer. We are melting mountain glaciers. Almost all the glaciers on Earth have, have retreated over the last decades um, because it's getting warmer. And that takes water that had been in the mountains and puts it in the ocean. And that raises sea level. And we're melting more around the edge of Greenland and we're changing the flow a little bit of Greenland and Antarctica. And that's putting more icebergs into the ocean where they melt. And that's making the ocean bigger. And sort of kind of vaguely, it's an you know, something something like an inch a decade or a little more of rise recently. So three millimeters per year. So three centimeters for 10 years is a bit over an inch. Um, and sort of kind of vaguely a third from each. The ocean expanding, the mountain glaciers melting, and the big ice sheets changing. And that's mostly Greenland. Um, there's lots of fun that we could talk about someday or not fun. Because what you get on your coast may differ from that somewhat. If your coast is sinking because um, you're pumping water out from under the, the sand and it's compacting, or if your coast is rising or sinking because the earth is still deforming from the end of the ice age that had these gigantic ice sheets push the land down, you will see something a little different. The ocean actually has very subtle hills and holes in its surface. If you can imagine taking a coffee cup that's full and blowing on it, what happens? The coffee goes over the edge because the, the wind makes uh, higher in some places and lower in other places. The winds make some parts of the ocean higher or lower. And as the winds change, where and how high these are, low these are changes. So there, Florida has been getting more sea level rise than the globe on average because of changes in the topography across the Gulf Stream. 
Um, so, so the ocean is rising because we're warming the world, and then other places are getting more interesting signals because we're warming the world and a bunch of other things. All right. So can you give us, and I, and I, I understand that the, the topic of today's episode is a doomsday glacier. And we're talking about an event that could totally throw a monkey wrench in all of this, right? But let, taking that aside for a moment, um, can you give us sort of the lower boundary and the upper boundary of what we could possibly see over the next century and where you think the likely area is that we're going to settle on. I know that there's a high end, a low end, but what's likely to happen in your, in your view. Right. So, so if the doomsday glacier behaves itself, if things sort of behave the way the, the UN IPCC has been expecting, the most important issue is still what we decide to do about temperature, energy, CO2, and so on. Um, we are committed to some more sea level rise because the ice and the ocean have not quite come into balance with the warming we've already caused. Uh, if we warm strongly, we get sort of three feet by the year 2100 averaged over the world. If we don't warm as strongly, we could get less than half of that. And that's sort of kind of um, a foot from melting of mountain glaciers, a foot from expanding the ocean, and a foot from the ice sheets. So if everything behaves itself, we decide whether we're going to get a foot or so of sea level rise or two or three um, by the year 2100 with a little more beyond. Um, and and we get the, so so that's sort of the background. And then if you look at the most recent report, it has that. And then it has a little dashed line, which is if things go wrong. <laughs> and that's a lot higher. So let's just give people, sometimes we can hear these slight changes in degree, slight changes in, in sea level rise. And it's hard to really imagine what that means. From what I understand, hundreds of millions of people live within three feet rise of sea level. That's going to be a catastrophe. So Let's just go through the U.S. and think about U.S. cities that could be in serious danger of being underwater. I mean, we've got Miami, right? I mean, New York City, Boston, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. I mean, there's a lot of cities, right? There's a lot of cities. This, this is it, it would matter. And it's very clear when people have run the numbers, um, the holding warming down so that we hold sea level rise to a smaller number has a whole lot of benefits. So, so yeah. that's very clear. In fact, the the real Nobel Prize in economics went to William Nordhaus of Yale for designing tools that allow you to ask whether these decisions would be economically helpful or not. And across the board, repeatedly, what these tools show is that taking some actions to reduce CO2 emissions is good for the economy. You, you'll meet the person who says, that, yeah, it, we're warming the world, but we can't afford to deal with it. In some sense, the Nobel Prize in economics says we can't afford not to deal with it because it's economically beneficial to try to reduce some of these impacts, including the sea level rise. So I'm going to pin you down and put you on record right now. And this is a clip that's going to go viral all around the world, could possibly get you canceled. You're saying that taking a city like New York City off the map could be economically disastrous 
That sounds that sounds extreme, my friend. That's a, a really radical thought, but yes, it really could be. So, um, you know, the, you you can find you go looking around a little online about at what point the the water coming up the the streets in Miami starts to threaten their water supply. You know, on the high tides, they, they're now getting parking garages and streets that have salt water in them. But at some point, they have to worry about, will that get into what they're drinking? Well, they've already, from what I understand, in Miami, they're starting to raise streets. Uh, yeah. They had to redo their um, drainage system. Really, really expensive. Yeah. All right, Dr. Alley. So, um, all those projections that you talked about, you know, one foot to three feet, I can't remember what the the boundary was, but... Um, that is assuming things go sort of according to plan. And one of the things that could not go according to plan is the Thwaites Glacier down in Antarctica, which has been dubbed the Doomsday Glacier. So uh, why has it been dubbed the Doomsday Glacier? Yeah. So so th- the projections for rise, sort of three feet by 2100 under strong warming with a foot or so of sea level coming from the ice sheets, that leaves more than 99% of the ice sheets intact, right? So, so what they're expecting is, yeah, we melt a lot of mountain glaciers, but we do almost nothing to Antarctica and Greenland. Um, and what that does immediately is, so what are the uncertainties in our projections of sea level rise? Well, it might be a little less a little better it might be a little worse it could be a lot worse because the ice sheets have enough ice to raise sea level almost 200 feet okay so so we're, that sounds bad this is it could be <laughs> so the question then becomes if you start thinking about things that could go wrong how would you take more of that ice and get it into the ocean and when we look at that, Thwaites keeps coming up as the first place to worry greatly about. Um, before it was called the Doomsday Glacier, it was called the weak underbelly of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. I've heard it also called the cork in the bottle. The cork in the bottle. Absolutely. So, yeah. so I have to go back to a little bit of, of um, professorism. Um, the pile of ice is sitting there on Antarctica. It's spreading under its own weight. It flows down to the coast. In cold places, it does not immediately break off to make icebergs. It remains attached and it flows over the ocean. And we call that attached above the ocean part an ice shelf. The ice shelves of the world almost all either are in a fjord, a bay, and they have friction on the sides, or they run aground on local spots in the seafloor with still ocean water around them, and they generate friction. That friction holds back the ice shelf. The ice shelf holds back the, the ice sheet, sort of like a flying buttress holding back a Gothic cathedral, and it keeps the ice sheet bigger and the ocean small. The ice shelves normally live in the coldest water in the world ocean, the stuff made when you grow sea ice. If you change their world, either it's neutral, you get rid of some cold water and bring in some more cold water, or it's bad. There's nothing colder. There's no way you can change them in ways that are good for them. And we're changing the winds. We're changing the temperature. We're changing the other things. The worry then is we 
melt the ice shelves, thin them or get rid of them. That lets the pile of non-floating ice flow into the ocean faster, and that raises sea level. And the place most likely to do a lot of that soon is the, re- the outlet through Thwaites Glacier from West Antarctica. Yeah, you've been quoted as saying the most likely place to generate the worst sea rise scenario is Thwaites. So why are we worried? I mean, I think one of the reasons we're worried is because people have been noticing cracks and fissures. I mean, tell us what what all of a sudden caused all this panic. All right. So this really starts decades ago, actually, with my PhD advisor discovering that the immense amount of of ice in West Antarctica that can raise sea level is sitting on even a more immense amount of ice that's already below sea level, and that it sort of kind of wants to be an ocean. (laughs) And this is the Great Bentley Trench. And so Charlie Bentley, the late great Charlie Bentley, uh, went to Antarctica in 1957. He defended his thesis one day. He got on the train the next day. He met the boat in Panama at the canal. He went to Antarctica for two and a half years. He came home and he had not graduated because they hadn't paid his thesis fee. Uh, <laughs> this is true. And he discovered this thing that Bureaucracy. wants to be an ocean. <laughs> there you go. That wants to be an ocean, but it's an ice sheet, sort of, kind of. And so since then, we've been building up an understanding of this. And, um, and the understanding keeps getting clearer and the answer keeps being being more or less the same, that you could dump a lot of ice that can raise sea level out through the outlet in Thwaites and possibly in a fairly big hurry. So uh, the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration, um, which is a, uh, a joint research program between the National Science Foundation in the U.S. and the National Environment Research Council in the U.K., uh, they've determined that there are some worrisome cracks and fissures in Thwaites uh, that could shatter to pieces in five years. Yep. How worried should we be that that time scale is real? Right. So, so that time scale is probably real. Uh, the people doing this are are just brilliant, and a big hat tip to to the National Science Foundation and to NERC. Some other collaborators as well. There's Germans involved, Koreans. You know, this is an amazing undertaking. Really great science. Really great people. I'll make a. A, a plug here among the many great people is our daughter, Karen, who's a professor up at Manitoba. Uh, so oh, uh, nice. at any, <laughs> all sorts of wonderful things. The ice shelf at Thwaites is, is in trouble. It's very clearly breaking up. If it goes, that's not the end of the world immediately. So what happens If you can imagine, um, when you make your pancake thicker, it spreads faster. If you pour just a little bit of batter on the, on the griddle, it doesn't spread very fast. And when you thicker spreads faster. Right now, the pancake of West Antarctica is squeezing out of Thwaites at a place that the ice is only 1,500 feet thick or something like that. And so it's squeezing out of there fairly rapidly, but not really, really, really rapidly. 
if we lose the ice shelf, it will thin there. The point of flotation will will move a little closer to the center of the ice sheet, and it's still pretty thin. And if it migrates too far, it will get really thicker where it can spread a lot faster as it heads down into the Bentley Trench. And that's the point where we go, oh, my goodness, you know, this is this is really bad. So this is what they're seeing is real. They've done a outstanding job of documenting it. If it happens, it's not good, but it doesn't necessarily say that the doomsday glacier will doom us yet. Um, it says we jolly well better get our research done faster to make sure we have a cushion to deal with this. Right. And so we always want to be clear that we're talking about a variety of scenarios, some more or less likely, but we also, I think want to give, um, the, the pessimistic view of this, which is, as you said, um, three feet was the high boundary if this didn't happen, but like 10 feet could be the high boundary if this does happen. So we're talking about a very different world, right? A very different world. Yes. The West Antarctic is 10 to 11 feet by itself, something like that. So, and, and Thwaites eventually will connect to the other parts in West Antarctica. So it, it would it would be bad if this happened. If you if you like your current coastline and you don't want to <laughs> scuba dive in streets of, of what are now coastal cities. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is important for people to understand is I don't care if you like the beach. I don't care if you like your current coastline. I don't care if you care about how Florida changes. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people having to migrate, you know, having to change all that infrastructure and build out places for them to live and relocate the financial system of the U.S. I mean, that's going to be expensive regardless of whether you like it or not, right? Yeah. Our, our military leaders have actually been very clear that that sort of destabilization from from large rapid effects of climate change is is not a good thing for national security. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, <clears throat> nothing about nothing about this is very funny, but uh, it is kind of funny you say that because for the longest time, you know, I'm not I'm not a climatologist, I'm a sociologist, but I pay pretty close attention to this stuff just because I think it's important. And uh, for the longest time, you know, it was mostly environmentalists and scientists like yourself who were were paying attention to this stuff. And you know, when the Department of of Defense started putting out statements about climate change, that's when I knew, like, okay, okay, it's not just the lefties here. It's not just the oh. the tree huggers. You know, this is this is becoming something else. Yeah. Oh, it's it's very clear that the Navy worries a lot about what it will do to their ports, but much more broadly, you you have when things break, we often ask the military to fix it, and so part of their job is to know what is likely to break, where and when, and they have been putting out very clear statements. So I want to I want to um, you were quoted in a recent piece in the Rolling Stone by Jeff Goodell. And I want to I want to read you a quote from that piece because it, it shocked me in conjunction with what I knew the IPCC had recently said. And so, first, let's just um, let's just set a few parameters so that because if my understanding of these parameters are correct, then that's why I should read you this quote. But if they're not, then then doesn't make much sense. But my understanding is uh, first of all, we're headed towards three degrees, so we need more emissions cuts. Is that true? 
I, I think that's fair to say with huge, you know, so th- this is projecting what we do with our energy system. And do we sure. keep burning coal in other and transportation and, burn coal right. here? The, 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 um, I have spent a lot of my life dealing with people who rightly ask us about the uncertainties in the physical science, but the uncertainties in projecting how we're going to change our energy system or what the economy do, I think are a little bit bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just, so I want to set a few parameters. So generally speaking, we think we're headed closer to three than two. All right, let's, let's set that aside for a moment. Secondly, my understanding is that Thwaites is operates much like a threshold system, which is it's not going to happen gradually. If you push it past a certain point, that's when you start to see rapid collapse. Is that is that right? Yeah. So beyond some point, it should speed up a lot if, if it really does right. go. Um, and with a few asterisks and will it regrow the ice shelf or not? But yes, there, there is there are futures in which beyond a threshold, then things speed up a lot. Okay, so being a threshold system, us headed towards three degrees, that's what made me so alarmed about this particular quote. So I want to read it to you and have you as a scientist unpack it for us, okay? All right, let me read it to you first. This is a December 29th, 2021 piece in the Rolling Stone by Jeff Goodell that um, Dr. Alley was, um, was quoted for quite extensively. But they note two studies that were published in the journal Nature. Now, one was more uh, optimistic, but one was more pessimistic. And so, here's what one of the models said. One of the models suggests that Thwaites, and I'm, I'm quoting the piece from Rolling Stone, suggests that Thwaites stays fairly stable until temperatures rise above two degrees Celsius warming. Then all hell breaks loose. Thwaites begins to fall into the sea like a line of dominoes pushed off a table and soon takes the rest of the West Antarctic ice sheet with it. And once the collapse begins, according to this model, it will be impossible to stop, at least on any human time scale, end quote. And in fact, you were quoting that article earlier saying, quote, we're dealing with an event that no human has ever witnessed before. We have no analog for this, end quote. So this, you got to talk me off the ledge here, Dr. Alley, because threshold system that beyond two degrees, all hell breaks loose. And we're headed towards three. Um, I need a hug. So tell yeah. me, uh, you know, tell me what you know. What should I make of this? Yeah, that's what it says. So, so be very clear. So I, I have a minor graduate level minor in metallurgical engineering, and I took the broken things class, and the prof said, you know essentially what the prof said is don't ever get yourself in a situation as an engineer where you have to predict the next crack you design so it's not going to break they told us calculate everything to five significant figures and then make it three times stronger than that because no one's going to believe you got it right to a factor of two we're talking about things breaking on an ice sheet and 
engineers, good engineers, in my experience, wouldn't want to be sitting in my chair trying to tell you exactly the temperature that's needed to break it. Um, you, a whole lot of, you, you could almost say that a whole lot of engineering is making sure you stay as far away from fracture mechanics as possible, because you, you don't want to look at the crack in your bridge and say, I don't think it's going to go the rest of the way. The ice shelf is cracking. And so, yeah, this is... I believe, so this was a model by, by Rob DeCanto, Dave Pollard, and others. I helped them a little bit on this. I believe it's a fantastic model. I did. They believe they did brilliant science on this, but it's one model. Uh, we sure. like having a bunch. The, the ideal way for us to do it, you want different teams with from different places with different funding sources and different, you know, don't trust me. You want to trust the scientific community. And, and there was a competing model in the same journal in the same yeah. issue, which said something different, right? Exactly. So this tells you that we've got work to do in our community, but we can't, I, I can't sleep at night if we didn't tell you what the one model says. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is the we don't know. We're in the zone where you can turn the knobs of what we don't know in ways that say we're OK and in ways that say, oh, no, we're not. And our hope is, you know, there's going to be people headed to the ice. There are people headed to the ice to try to solve this. There's people putting their lives into trying to solve this. But we're also I think all of us are are nervous that we're not solving it fast enough. Yeah. I teach an environmental uh, sociology class. We, we focus mostly on like what motivates people to act and policies and that kind of stuff, not the, the hard science of this stuff. But one of the things that I often emphasize because folks like the AAAS emphasize it and the IPCC emphasize it, which is that so much of what is talked about in that scientific conversation about future climate modeling doesn't take into account events that if they were to happen, they can be low risk, but if they are to happen, our models are pretty much useless at that point. At that point, you have to develop a new model because like you said, you've dumped a whole bunch of more water into the ocean, right? So um, that's the risk here, right? Is that, um, yeah, it may not happen. And the risk may be, you know, um, you know, lower than some people are worried about. But if it does, then all of a sudden it's a much different world. It's not a gradually different world. It's a much different world. Yeah, I, I think every big business worries about black swans, probably every little business, too, about the the tail risks or whatever you have. You know what you look at, what is likely to go wrong, and then you look at what is possible to go wrong. And we are, too. You know, we, we spend a lot of effort. Your car has an airbag and anti-lock brakes and it has all of these safety features that most days most of the time you don't need and you spend a fair chunk of your transportation budget on the police that will keep drunk drivers off the road and safety devices on your car and traffic engineers to make the road safer because of the slight chance that you you get pancaked by a drunk driver you know <laughs> And so, so, you know, a lot of different places in our lives, we look at risk and we say, we're going to try to avoid the really bad ones because um, they're so bad. And even if, as you've said, 
it does break as we assume it will that ice is already floating so that's not going to necessarily change the question is how does the absence of that impact the rest of the glacier and and that's our big worry right absolutely you nailed it right right okay all right so um so let's move on um one thing I think is important to underscore, and I'm going to, I'll just sort of make this statement, but you can expand upon it with your expertise, but we should never assume all is lost, even if it does break up, because no matter what happens, even if it's the worst case scenario, cutting emissions will always be helpful. Even if we take the cork out of the bottle, even if, as that title of that article said, the fuse has been blown and there are processes underway that we can't stop, we can alter them. We can slow them down. We can give ourselves time to adapt, right? Absolutely. And we can avoid dumping a lot of East Antarctica into the ocean because what Thwaites can do can be done with even more ice over in East Antarctica with more warming. So Thwaites is the first one we're worried about, but it's not the last one. All right. So I have a few uh, questions to wrap up. The first one's serious and the other two aren't, aren't so serious. So, um, but, you know, what are some, um, you know, when you think about like take home messages, right? Like, you know, you're a professor when you give a lecture, you know, people aren't going to remember everything that you say. But, you know, if a policymaker was listening to this episode or, you know, just a member of the public is listening to this episode, what are some big take home messages that you like for them to to hold hold dear and keep with them as they move forward? Yeah, the um <sighs> The whole scholarship of energy and climate says that if we use our knowledge effectively and deal with fossil fuel CO2 emissions effectively, we help the economy as well as the environment. We help employment as well as ethics. We help health as well as national security. If you don't trust the science, that is probably more true because the uncertainties are heavily weighted on the bad side. Sea level rise could be a little less. It could be a little more. It could be a lot more. Um, Most of our looking at the future, we're assuming that we don't break things that we care about. We just bend them a little bit, but sometimes things break. So using our knowledge, finding out how to build a sustainable future that will power everyone forever is a fantastic opportunity. The progress that is being made now, I I give a public talk on our history of energy use and running out of energy supplies and having, you know, interventionist governments that the town of East Ham in Cape Cod first encounter beach where the pilgrims meet the native people in the 1600s, that town still in the 1600s outlawed your own ability to cut your own tree on your own property because deforestation had become so extreme. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where they were going to get fuel. We now are the first generation in human history that knows how to build a sustainable energy system. And it's a small number of decades away and it will get there with some help of fossil fuels that we've been relying on for a very long time and that have done us a whole lot of good too. But we have just fantastic opportunities if we make good use of our knowledge and we do it with respect for where we came from and where we want to go and for the people involved. 
Uh, very briefly before I, I uh, ask the final two questions, um, because you, you talked about progress. And my understanding from the most recent, from the sixth assessment, is that um, the models themselves have become much more accurate in recent years. And also computing power has become much more expansive and, and much more impressive to the point where we can actually trust a lot of these um, predictions a lot more than we could in the past because we're getting more accurate. Is that, is my understanding correct? It's correct. I mean, the basic understanding, we burn fossil fuels, it puts up CO2 that warms. That's um, 1800s, Arrhenius in 1896. The um, modern quantum mechanical understanding of the radiative transfer in the atmosphere was done by the Air Force after World War II, because not only does CO2 warm the climate, but it blocks the view of a, a enemy bomber for your heat-seeking missile. I mean, this is just physics. Uh, but the the computational power, the resolution of the models, the things that are included have just gotten better and better. And just a whole lot of this is now the pound on the table near certainty. This is, this is right. You can use it. And one of the, I had uh, Dr. James Gerber uh, on recently to talk about um, the sixth assessment and one of the hopeful things that he said was um, with the increase in computational power, with, you know, the improvements in the model and computing and all those sorts of things, he said, while it is kind of depressing that the lower boundary has been sort of creeping up over time on where we can keep this thing, the upper boundary has been creeping down as well as we've gotten more accurate. So that's a hopeful message, right? It is indeed a helpful message. And, and there's a number of them in there. We have... <laughs> We, we always seem to muddle through somehow. And in this case, we can see great ways to muddle through. And, and there's, a, there's a whole lot of good can come out of the response to this. Yeah. And it, one of the things he said I thought was really interesting was uh, one of the reasons why he likes to avoid talking about numbers is because if you focus so much on numbers, when we push past those numbers, people will think all is lost. And I often talk in my class, like, you know, imagine if uh, a swarm of bees was coming at you in your backyard and you're standing inside your house and the, the sliding glass door is open and you slam the sliding glass door shut and all the bees start hitting uh, the sliding glass door. And you say to yourself, you know, I see a few bees, they're crawling in through the cracks. And instead of getting stung by a hundred bees, I'm getting stung by one. You know what? Forget it. Let's just stop all of our defenses. Well, no, if you open that door, a hundred bees are going to sting you, right? So uh, I think one of the things to remember is even if things aren't as good as we want, even if we push past that two degree threshold, everything we've done so far is keeping us from going even farther beyond that, right? Yep. Well put. Thank we should you. never quit, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've we finished up the hard science part of the show, uh, Dr. Alley. So a couple quick hitter questions to end the show. You ready? First of all, I hear that uh, actually maybe this is the most important scientific question I could ask you in this entire show. In reading your Penn State bio, I hear that you have a stay-at-home cat. Correct. <laughs> uh, are you a cat person a dog person tell us about your cat oh and she's an old grumpy lady um coral <laughs> and um she she's a 16 year old cat doing doing fine 16 so we, wow she, she likes it her way and that's that's the way it's going to be so that sounds like a cat it's yeah funny <laughs> 
Uh, last question, uh, because you put it in an email to me. And so I got to ask you, to, I got to ask you the question, um, you know, working in academia, working in scientific research, there are certain norms, certain expectations. Uh, but when you're doing work like yourself, then you start interacting with people very different from you. So you're dealing with the UN, the IPCC, you're dealing with government officials, anything interesting, any interesting insights, interesting stories you can tell us about dealing with those different spheres of, of, uh, of power? Yeah. I had this wonderful opportunity once that I, I went to Greenland with 10% of the Senate, um, people from both sides of the aisle, uh, we, a long weekend. And when the plane, when the airplane door closed and we took off for Greenland, those senators turned into the most interesting and interested people that you can imagine. And they tell jokes and they ask really insightful questions and they make connections. They, they, it was very impressive. And when the door opened and the press was there, they have to be careful again, because if you say a million words that are right and 10 that are wrong, the 10 are going to dominate the headlines forever. And my impression from dealing with them is that they're waiting and hoping that they can get enough cover from the voters to do the right thing for us. That's both encouraging and incredibly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> this is your world. This is sociology. I will not even go there. So, so I will tip my hat to you. But there was a lot of talent on that plane. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that a lot. And um, it's encouraging to know that there's real concern. These aren't sociopaths. <laughs> you know, they actually are considering the weight of the evidence. It's also discouraging knowing that um, the current state of our democracy is not one that's very productive. So, um, Dr. Ali, please keep doing the good work that you're doing. And uh, hopefully you will encourage people to do the right thing. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights. And, and thanks for joining the show today. Well, thank you for what you do. And thanks to your listeners and take care. All right. Well, before we go, let's take a look around the news at some stories that caught my eye this past week. The threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine and what that means for NATO continues. The Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. is seeking to build a coalition with European countries to impose financial sanctions, export controls, and even a halt to the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline if Russia invades Ukraine. And these sanctions, if they're applied broadly enough, could hamper access to crucial gear and know-how by all companies operating in Russia. Another story that got a lot of national attention I'm sure most of you have heard about. This from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Hours before President Biden was to visit Pittsburgh on Friday to tout his infrastructure plan, a bridge with a troubled inspection history collapsed injuring 10 people and stranding seven vehicles. Three people were rushed to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries, and a fourth was taken to a hospital about two hours later. We were fortunate, Pittsburgh Mayor Ed Ganey said, that no one was killed. Across the U.S., supply chain issues continue, with some goods being impacted more than others. In-stock rates on consumer packaged goods have fallen to as low as 82% in some states. There are, of course, lots of causes, including raw material and labor shortages, bottlenecks and price increases in the shipping industry, the COVID pandemic, weather disruptions, 
and the way just-in-time inventory management has been disrupted by supply chain issues. For more on this, take a look at the nice piece from Jim Swift in The Bulwark on January 28th. At a rally in Texas this weekend, former President Donald Trump floated the possibility of pardoning those involved in the January 6th Capitol riot if he's re-elected. A troubling statement given the manner in which it could impact Americans' views of the insurrection, as well as obstruction of justice worries. Trump has received pushback, including from Republican ally Senator Lindsey Graham, who called his comments inappropriate, saying, quote, I don't want to reinforce that defiling the Capitol was okay, end quote. He went on to say that those who are found guilty should, quote, go to jail and get the book thrown at them because they deserve it, end quote. Trump also released a statement this past week saying that, quote, if the vice president had absolutely no right to change the presidential election results in the Senate, despite fraud and many other irregularities, how come the Democrats and rhino Republicans like wacky Susan Collins are desperately trying to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election? Actually, what they are saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. End quote. Now, of course, his election claims have been thoroughly debunked, so I won't spend time on that. But his call to overturn a fair election is unprecedented and extraordinarily dangerous. As we have been covering on this podcast quite regularly, this explicit authoritarian language from the head of one of our two major parties has the potential to normalize beliefs and encourage behavior that will further destabilize our democracy. This stuff just has got to stop. In yet another Trump-related story, this coming from the New York Times, six weeks after Election Day, with his hold on power slipping, President Donald J. Trump directed his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to make a remarkable call. Mr. Trump wanted him to ask the Department of Homeland Security if it could legally take control of voting machines in key swing states, three people familiar with the matter said. Giuliani did so, calling the department's acting deputy secretary, who said he lacked the authority to audit or impound the machines. Uh, Just a bizarre and incredibly troubling story. There's a new book out from Thomas Maine titled The Rise of Illiberalism, And I would encourage everybody to go take a look at his February 1st piece in The Bulwark, where he discusses his quantitative analysis of the rise of illiberal factions on both the right and the left, and the asymmetry that he finds, which is more growth on the right. In vaccine news, the Food and Drug Administration fully approved Moderna's mRNA COVID-19 vaccine on Monday, saying it meets its safety and manufacturing requirements. It's the second coronavirus vaccine to receive full approval after the FDA-approved Pfizer's vaccine back in August. Turning our attention to China, Axios reports that foreign journalists and news outlets are facing unprecedented hurdles covering China, as the country's government steps up excessive intimidation efforts, according to a report published Sunday night. As global outlets prepare to cover the Beijing Winter Olympics, which begin Friday, 99% of foreign journalists surveyed by the Foreign Correspondents Club of China reported conditions that did not meet international standards, and 62% said they were obstructed at least once by police or other officials. 
In other news, the global microchip shortage continues and many fear it could get worse in the U.S. with so little U.S. capacity, tensions between the U.S. and China, and the possibility of the U.S. losing access to chips from Taiwan. The Wall Street Journal reports that hiring processes in the U.S. now include more frank discussions about remote work, balancing job duties with family, and staving off burnout, yet knowing how much to share with a hiring manager remains tricky. You can read more about this story over at WSJ.com. And finally, the Cincinnati Bengals and Los Angeles Rams both won their respective conference championship games and will face off in the Super Bowl in L.A. in a little over a week. That's it for this episode. Don't forget to check us out at connorsforum.org. That's C-O-N-N-O-R-S-F-O-R-U-M.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Take a liking to you.